Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. In 1968, local channel 10, Philadelphia television reporter Bill Baldini was just 26 years old, the first time he set foot on Pennhurst property. He'd heard from numerous viewers that the local mental health facility, the Pennhurst State School and Hospital, located just a quick 30 minutes uh, northwest of Philly and Spring City, about 30 miles away, was a chamber of horrors. He decided to check it out and promised himself that if one-tenth of what people told him they saw inside Penhurst was actually happening, he would do an investigative story on the abuse committed there and expose it. Baldini was able to get inside Penhurst through a membership with the JCs of Philadelphia. Nice to have a JC suck subject doing some good this time. John Wayne Gacy, uh, real big into the JCs, if you will recall. Uh, Once inside, Baldini was horrified by what he saw. He said, I was never so shocked and surprised in my life. He recalled telling his boss what he had seen, and his boss didn't believe him at first. He begged to do a story that ended up becoming a five-part news report for WCAU Channel 10 that shocked the people of Delaware Valley. Baldini showed the people in and around Philadelphia what life was like at Pennhurst, and they were disgusted and outraged. They had 80 infants in one ward, Baldini said. There were 80 metal cribs standing against the walls. Inside those cribs were children anywhere from six months to six or seven years old, abandoned to psychologically rot in the facility. His news director and executive producers actually cried when they watched the footage. Usually back then you got one and a half minutes for a story, Baldini would later explain. The first story on Pennhurst was seven minutes. Baldini's story eventually led to our government investigating the treatment of the patients at Pennhurst, which led to the institution being shut down for good. And I think Baldini's story led to uh, a lot of people taking a closer look at themselves. Now that they knew this was going on, you know, what should be done with members of society less fortunate than they were? It's a question many of us are still asking. We take a hard look at Pennhurst today, and we examine our own recent cultural attitudes towards, uh, you know, people who are intellectually disabled. In a let's try and take better care of each other, let's not suffer the little children edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) 
Happy Monday, Time Stalkers. How you uh, holding up after Friday's episode? I am uh, I'm still feeling a little mentally fragile after sucking my way through the toy box killer. I keep thinking of that room, man. I keep thinking of that FBI agent who couldn't handle what she'd seen and just walked outside and, yeah. Ah, it's going to haunt me for a while, I think. Uh, there's going to be some tough moments today, but overall, uh, much more positive episode. An episode featuring a lot of people trying to trying to do good, trying to do, uh, do their best to change things for the better. I am Dan Cummins, aka the Jerk Off King. No, wait, no, that's uh, no, wait. I'm the uh, I'm the uh, I'm the Master Butt Blaster. No, nah, that doesn't sound right. No, I'm the uh, I'm the Master Sucker. There we go, there we go. I'm the Fourth Legged Bojangles. I'm the Voice Box of Michael Motherfucking McDonald. What a fool believes he sees. The wise man has a power. To, 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 to reason away What seems to be Is nothing And then after that I just go to dog levels Where only dogs can fucking hear and hate it And you are not listening to the lead singer For the world's worst greatest <laughs> The world's worst greatest What? Doobie Brothers uh, cover band No, you're listening to Time Suck I misspoke there, uh, but, I, but I do think that's actually uh, pretty correct. I think I am the world's best, worst Doobie Brothers vocalist, cover band thing, person. All right. If I can get away from the Doobie Brothers. Kicking off today with some positive thoughts. Uh, you probably need them after that, uh, after I just blew your eardrums out. Sending positive energy today for time sucker Larry Harrell's little girl, Mabry, just recently brought into the world on February 15th. Already undergoing uh, open-heart surgery tomorrow, July 17th. Larry has called upon the Time Suck community to ask that we say a quick word for his daughter. Quick prayer for Mabry uh, Harrell. So pray to your God, Time Suckers. Pray to Jesus, Allah, Yahweh, Buddha. Pray to Nimrod. Pray to whoever else you look to uh, for guidance or clarity. Pray for little Mabry. This brave little champion of a meat sack, she needs your thoughts right now to mend her broken little heart. So uh, I don't know you, little Mabry, but I love you. And I'm telling you to fight with everything you've got tomorrow. Don't fuck around, little girl. You grow up to be a force of good in this world. A world that can be so cruel and so dark. You grow up. You be one of the good guys. You change things for the better. Be the beautiful, healthy, well, uh, you know, well-balanced, well-intentioned little creature your dad needs you to be. I uh, I believe in you. And, uh, yeah, so our thoughts are with you. Our thoughts are with you, Larry. Now, uh, time for some even uh, more positive energy. We, we've picked our, our Space Lizard charity for July, uh, thanks to Spaces or Patreon subscriptions, we're giving another $500 this month to charity. And this month, we're donating it to our very own Adam Thoreau's Good People Doing Good Things.org. His nonprofit organization specializes in random acts of kindness coffee for firefighters, meals for veterans, books for school kids, toys for kids who can't afford them. A lot of wonderful things. And you can help him. You can help him donate. Uh, he's out there in Rhode Island. You can go to, uh, you know, Good People Doing Good.org. Org, and uh, the link is in the episode description today. So yeah, man, we've got we've got quite a community. Uh, man, I keep thinking about uh, yeah, I keep thinking about you, Larry. Uh, man, I can't imagine, man, I can't imagine what you're uh, feeling right now. But Larry, uh, we are we are thinking of you, man. We are thinking of you, little girl. Okay, now a bit of me promo. Not much. Flat Earth Tour uh, rolls into SoCal today. Uh, I hope I had a great time in Orlando. I had to record this before traveling to Orlando, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume it uh, went well. So yay. Ah, man, I hope, hope well, well, uh, hitting the comedy store in La Jolla, California, uh, July 20th through the 22nd. That's this weekend. 
That's this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Next week, hitting Dayton, Ohio, just two nights, July 27th and 28th. From After there, uh, I'm going to roll into, roll into side splitters in Tampa. Uh, I'm going to beat the Palm Beach Improv. I'm going to beat the Zanies in Chicago, right across from Second City. All that in August. And then I'm going to beat the Denver Comedy Works at the end of August, doing another live time suck on Sunday the 26th. More tour dates, more live podcasts coming up. Portland, uh, um, Tacoma. Hollywood, Huntington Beach, California. A lot more at dancummins.tv. A lot of busy tour in the next few months. Also, thanks again for the continued ratings, new time suckers. Man, they mean so much. They spread the suck. They let me know that uh, the late nights are paying off and I'm on the right path. Sometimes, depending on what they say, they help me uh, know that I'm on the wrong path in some, some way. I got to step it up and fucking correct it. Got to gotta right the ship. Is that a saying? I think I just made that up. One last thing. Limited edition Chikatilo uh, kits are, are sold out in the large t-shirt size. Uh, sorry, we'll, we will not be making more of that kit. There's still a lot of XLs. Uh, you know, still a lot of uh, the other sizes. Some of the other sizes are very close to being uh, sold out. So thanks to everyone who, who got them. They're fucking too ridiculous. And I love them. And now, let's delve back into a look at the Pennhurst, uh, you know, State Hospital and look into our own cultural attitudes towards those who cannot, for whatever reason take care of themselves. Before we go any further, there is another Time Suck episode that, that serves as a good companion to this one. It's, it's way back, episode 20, Insane, Insane Asylums, released, uh, you know, January 30, 2017. And uh, in that one, I give an overview of the uh, of America's history of how those deemed mentally ill or or sometimes, you know, feeble-minded, as it was called, uh, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever other labels... You know, were given to people deemed a burden by society, uh, and just how those people have been treated throughout the history of the U.S. or not treated. It provides some additional context regarding why institutions were built in the U.S. and what went on in a lot of them. Also, I do need to just really clarify that uh, on the web, a lot of info, you know, seems to portray the Penthurst State Hospital as the Penthurst Insane Asylum, and that's that's not true. It was uh, it was not that. It was an institution for people who were at the time referred to as feeble-minded, people now said to have intellectual disabilities. It was one of the uh, first institutions of that kind built in the world. Uh, you know, quote-unquote insane asylums had been built, uh, you know, uh, for decades kind of prior, had been around a little bit uh, longer. But this was a new type of institution. Okay, so so that out of the way. Let's dive back into Bill Baldini's 1968 investigative journalism uh, piece. The first segment of his expose opened with Baldini narrating over images of the patients at Penhurst saying, we ship them 25 miles out of town and forget them while they decay from neglect. I watched Baldini's series where viewers uh, see children strapped to beds, crying on dirty floors, rocking back and forth and cradling their heads. It, it reminds me, honestly, of, of scenes from American Horror Stories' second season at Asylum, that season set in an insane asylum where – People who uh, shouldn't be there were there, you know, where uh, quote unquote sane people would be mixed in with people with severe, you know, cognitive uh, disabilities or mental illnesses, a, a place where you would absolutely dread to be taken to, a place you'd try and escape from, a place like uh, Penhurst. Uh, Baldini continues saying the horrible and almost inhumane conditions that prevail at Penhurst are not the fault of a handful of dedicated doctors and administrators that are employed there. No, the children, as they are called, are rotting in their dreadful pate, uh, plate, uh, we can thank society for forsaking them. We have failed them. Uh, I think it's supposed to be rotting in in this dreadful place. I don't know. Maybe that's some uh, fun language he had. That's the uh, that's the quote pulled from another uh, transcript of his 
of his series, Dreadful, Dreadful Plate. All right. Baldini's footage is powerful, disturbing stuff, man. There are, uh, you know, these are people's children. They're brothers, sisters, sons, and daughters. In an interview years later with the Institute on Disabilities at Temple University, Baldini uh, claimed the conditions were so bad at Penhurst that, uh, you know, what, what they're witnessing was so gut-wrenching and jarring that his, his sound and, and camera operators wanted to walk out. He had to give them breaks uh, so they could emotionally reset themselves in order to keep filming for five straight days. He claims the, the reaction from the public was so strong after his first segment aired that his boss told him to go immediately back there and continue shooting so they could air another segment the next night. People were outraged and intrigued. Could this really be happening in their America? Could it, could it really be happening in 1968? Baldini worked himself into the ground investigating Penhurst. He actually seemed, uh, when, you, when you watch his footage, he seems visibly just frazzled and exhausted. Uh, you know, he's uh, irritated. You watch the interviews he conducts with some of the doctors and staff. He can't hi- hide his disgust and frustration. It's actually a little uncomfortable watching him grill some of the employees who honestly seem to be doing the best job they can. You know, just they're just working in horrible conditions. And, uh, and I feel for him, man. I, I do understand their position in, in a small way. When, when I, you know, very briefly worked in the, in the system, so to speak, uh, working at uh, Child Protective Services where I started – then at the uh, Crisis Residential Treatment Center and some other group homes around Spokane uh, a little after that. E- easily one of the hardest parts of that, those jobs, one of, the, one of the aspects that got to me the most was a feeling of just utter powerlessness. You know, you, you knew a lot of times what needed to be done, what should be done, but you, you didn't have the power to do it. You know it couldn't be pulled off. Like, like you, you, you knew that many of the people you were working with needed uh, maybe to be placed in, a, in, a, in the care of someone else. You know, I was working with a lot of teens you know, sometimes you met other relatives who were dying to provide a good home for the kids you were working with, and, and you know, you knew they would be a, a good guardian, but oftentimes the kid's current guardian or, or parent or, you know, was a fucking dirtbag, you know, somebody you knew was just never going to provide a loving, safe home for them, just wasn't willing to, to but sign the papers, though, to let someone else do the job they clearly couldn't. That happened a lot. You know, sometimes maybe it's their pride. Maybe they, maybe they wanted that welfare money. Maybe they just, uh, you know, were just a fucking hateful person. Who didn't want to see their own kid have a chance at a better life. There are those parents out there, man. If there's one thing we've learned over and over here on the suck, it's there's some fucking pieces of shit out there. And, uh, you know, there was nothing you could do to change some of these assholes' minds. And so you would end up placing a kid back into a home where you knew they were being abused. Y- you knew they were probably being molested in some cases. You know, at the very least, horribly neglected, and there wasn't a fucking thing you could do about it. And that used to tear me apart. You know, sometimes it's, it's easy to know what the problem is, but it is a, it is a whole other can of worms you got to deal with the to actually fix the problem, to actually solve it. Well, Baldini did his damnedest to try and figure out how to solve the problem he was looking at in Penhurst. Uh, he worked himself sick, you know, literally shooting, writing, producing, editing, sleeping in the women's room on the, the news station for only three to uh, four hours a night to expose every problem he could find. By the fifth day, he lost his voice to exhaustion, could no longer narrate his own program. And that, and that really is from the articles. It says that he's sleeping in the women's room. That's a, I thought that was like a weird note. Like, why, why can't you sleep in the men's room? Pro- I'm guessing because the women's room probably had like a little fucking... Like a little, uh, not a couch, but I, I'm, I'm trying to think why I've been in some women's rooms, but, but, I, but I have. I don't know why. I would Now I'm trying to figure out why. But I have, memory, I have memories of seeing like, um, like a little uh, bench, like a little padded bench in some of those where I guess you can sit and watch your friend, I don't know, pee in the stall or just wait for her to be done. You, you don't have those in a lot of, in a lot of men's restrooms. So, and, master, and men's restrooms, sometimes I've had to like, oh, this is why I've done it. Sometimes what I'll do is if I'm out in public and the men's room is locked and I really got to go, I'm just like, all right, fuck, I'll just go in the women's room. Like if, if it's a one in a timer, for sure. I won't, I won't go into it if it's multiple, unless someone's guarding the door, you know. But, uh, but I have noticed that the conditions in a women's restroom tend to be way better 
than uh, conditions in men's restrooms. I know, I know some of you women already know this already, probably most of you, that uh, men can be fucking just dirty animals when it comes to, to bathroom hygiene. Partly due to us having to stand up and, you know, shoot it a little farther to get in the toilet in some cases. But Jesus, like, even as a guy, I'm amazed at some of the horror shows I've seen in the bathroom. It's like, dude, how, how did you shit there? How did you even get it there? Like what? What? What is going on on the floor around here? Did like did someone just die in here? Did, did I just miss paramedics taking out a dead body? And uh, but for some reason they they didn't shut the bathroom down for like any kind of crime scene and they didn't clean it. Anyway, maybe that's I'm getting way too uh, uh, you know too far off track thinking about why he was sleeping in the women's room. Uh, but anyway, he, yeah, he, he couldn't even um, narrate the last installment. He lost his voice. He just from exhaustion. Uh, a colleague stepped in to narrate it. Because what he found was intense, man. There was only two attendants, for example, watching uh, those 80 kids in the cages we mentioned earlier. When he asked uh, why the kids were put in cages and why they also couldn't walk, he was told they didn't have enough staff to set up mattresses on the floor uh, in order for these children to learn how to crawl. So they just like basically just left them in cages. you know. And again, you know, children, six, seven years old in, in this instance, didn't know how to walk, didn't know how to talk, just you know, sitting in a little cage. Uh, yeah, fucking terrible. In an interview with uh, Dr. Jesse Fear – and that really is his name. There was a dude there working there named Dr. Fear. Uh, Dr. Fear, your patient's here to see you. Uh, <laughs> fuck, it's terrible. He, uh, he shared other disturbing details of Panthers with Baldini, like how, like how residents who would act out would be punished by downgrading them a little bit. This is a weird thing to do to somebody. By this, what he would mean is that uh, say somebody has an IQ of like 80. Someone's just a few points outside the normal range. But their family couldn't take care of them for whatever reason. You know, it could be somebody who just who just needs a loving family, a stable home, and education more than treatment. If they if they got that, they could become a functioning member of society. And then uh, these people would be frustrated that they're fucking stuck in an institution, you know, and, uh, and they would act out. And then you know, as punishment, they would be put in a in a different level of one of the buildings, a different room with people of uh, IQs of say like you know ten, twenty, thirty people who didn't know how to speak. People who could have uh, severe cognitive disabilities might uh, flail you know, themselves about wildly or, or constantly scream or shit on the floor or try to hit or kick anybody who came near them. Can you imagine being locked in a ward like that if you're a person with a, you know, uh, an IQ in or, or borderline in the, the normal range? You know? And then the person just to, to cherry on top, the person putting you there is fucking Dr. Fear. It's ridiculous. Baldini pointed out that the local zoo treated its animals better than the patients were treated at Penhurst. More money was spent on food and care on average for animals in the zoo uh, than uh, at, on humans at Penhurst. Like the zoo would spend seven fifteen each day on, a, on an animal where Penhurst only spent five ninety per resident at the time of the airing. He also pointed out that the animals were in less crowded conditions at the zoo than the people were at Penhurst. Uh, the superintendent claimed that the capacity of Penhurst was 1,984 residents. At the time of Baldini's investigation, there were 2,791 residents. That's 40% above absolute max capacity. And, uh, and, I, and I do stress that, uh, you know, he was, he was outraged, but Baldini's report never points at the employees of Penhurst as being the real problem. He points at the system being the real problem. The institution was not getting proper funding. It wasn't properly staffed. You know, for example, there was 900 women living there, but not one full-time gynecologist. There are, uh, you know, no teachers working there with special education degrees. Officials knew that hundreds of patients should be transferred to better institutions, but couldn't do so. Couldn't, uh, couldn't find other institutions to take them. More doctors needed to be hired. The buildings needed to be either rebuilt in many cases or condemned in others, but they didn't have the funds to do any of that. Eventually, something would be done. Baldini's report would lead uh, 
eventually to uh, you know more investigations, which would then lead to some lawsuits, which would then lead to the facility being closed down. And then, tragically, as a weird end note to the story, Baldini would end up spending the rest of his life in prison after being found guilty of flashing his penis at several kids near several Philadelphia grade schools in 1971. Now, let's dig into the rise and fall of Penhurst in today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. Quick note before we begin. Uh, Baldini, to my knowledge, never flashes penis to anyone. I just want to let you sit on that for a little bit, uh, kid or not. What a fucking weird footnote to his story that would have been. And what a weird thing for me not to address. Just to be like, yeah, this guy, he's a social justice warrior. He exposed a lot of things. And uh, yeah, if I can show his uh, dick to some kids. Anyway, uh, and moving on. <laughs> I mean, that'd be terrible for the, for the story. Baldini fought for the people of Philly who could not fight for themselves. He was a champion of social justice and reform. And then, uh, inexplicably, he started uh, whipping his dick out around town, local schools. Ball. Baldini's weenie was the headline in a lot of papers. Baldini's weenie made uh, one too many cameos on October 7th, 1971, near the monkey bars of Radney Elementary School. He was incarcerated and then never heard from again. Why couldn't Baldini get a hold of his weenie? Or rather, why couldn't he let it go more often? Anyway. 1897, the Polk Center opens. Uh, it's the first state operated institution in Pennsylvania for people with intellectual disabilities. Prior to institutions, the mentally ill and the mentally impaired were generally cared for or not cared for by their families or put in almshouses in the U.S. And the quality of care varied considerably. Some people were cared for by their families and, you know, some were locked in a room or a basement or attic. It sounds horrific. Uh, on the surface, and it is, and uh, you know, sure, sometimes it was, but people don't always have the resources to handle the burden life is placed upon them. That's what I always think about with stories like this. You know, a lot of people get so fucking outraged, but it's like, would they do anything any different? Like, oh my god, how how could they just lock them away? All right, what would you do? What would you do if you're some 19th century homesteader? You're struggling to grow enough crops to feed the family of ten you got. You know, two of the kids have polio already. Dad has a bad back. Mom has the gout. Everyone has a touch of scurvy. A lot of scurvy back there. A lot of, no, there's no running water, no indoor plumbing. You're living in a two-room shanty. And then, you know, the eighth kid is born with severe disabilities, mentally and physically. You know, this uh, eighth kid's never going to be able to help around the house, never going to be able to work the farm, needs to be fed, cleaned, kept from hurting himself. Pretty soon, even though he needs the care of an infant, he's too big to hold, too big to put in a sling. What if giving him the care he needs takes so much time away from other family duties, other farm duties, that you're putting the whole family at risk on some level in order to take care of one member of the family? Now, I may be being a little bit dramatic, but only to illustrate the point, it's not always possible to make only noble, fair decisions for everybody in life. Again, easy to say how could you, but truly how would you truly do anything better? Food for thought in this episode. This is going to be a big theme here. What, what is the solution? Before institutions designed uh, were designed for the mentally ill, mentally impaired, or the disabled, uh, people were also placed in almshouses, uh, which were large group homes built usually by churches to provide for those in the community who could not take care of themselves. And these places were kind of a little bit of everything. They housed the mentally ill, cognitively delayed or impaired, the feeble, the elderly, you know, sometimes orphans, sometimes, uh, oftentimes, you know, like people who are like blind, deaf, uh, paralyzed, you know, unable to take care of themselves for a number of other reasons. There wasn't specialized care because there wasn't specialist. You know, it wasn't fucking physical therapists. It wasn't experts when it came to how to care for people with a variety of disabilities. That just that shit didn't exist. Five years later, an act of the Pennsylvania legislature created Penhurst State School and Hospital 
May 15, 1903, and the Eastern Pennsylvania State Institution for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic. That's all kind of like the part of this big one complex. Uh, this pairing with today's knowledge of various medical conditions is obviously less than ideal. People who suffer from uh, some condition that results in them having an extremely low IQ and people who suffer from seizures are two very different groups of people. Epilepsy is a central nervous system, a, a neurological disorder, which brain activity becomes abnormal, causing seizures or periods of unusual behavior, sensations, and sometimes loss of awareness. According to the Mayo Clinic, anyone can develop epilepsy. Epilepsy affects both males and females of all races, ethnic backgrounds, and ages. Seizure symptoms can vary wide, widely. Some people with epilepsy simply stare blankly for a few seconds during a seizure. Others repeatedly twitch their arms or legs. Uh, treatment with medication uh, or sometimes surgery excuse me, uh, can control seizures for the majority of people with epilepsy. Some people require lifelong treatment to control seizures, but for others, the seizures eventually go away. Some children with epilepsy may outgrow the condition with age. Now, note the clinic doesn't say anything about any sort of cognitive impairment, any sort of intellectual disability. How shitty would that be if you're very intelligent, you know, hyper aware of what's happening around you, and uh, then you're committed to an institution where you are locked up with people literally, and, and I'm not being uh, flippant or insulting, but people literally drooling on themselves, unable to speak, borderline catatonic, people literally banging their heads into the wall, mumbling to themselves, people literally pissing and shitting themselves, etc., you know, they put some fucking straitjacket on you. It does nothing to help your seizures at all. It does leave you unable to defend yourself from the variety of untreated, you know, uh, mental impairment that surrounds you. That does not sound fun. Also, initially, uh, I, I should note that epileptics and the intellectually disabled were housed in separate locations. But I paint that scenario because overcrowding almost immediately led to many of them sharing the same space. Uh, between 1903 and 1908, the first buildings of the Eastern State Institution for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic are uh, completed on a site known locally as Crab Hill, an area named after the hundreds or possibly even thousands of forest crabs that lived on the hill at the time. Now, weird side note, sadly, because uh, of the uh, institution's construction, this, this local subspecies of the eastern North American land crab now thought to be completely extinct. But for the first few years of the institution being open, uh, these land crabs were a bit of a problem. They had to be exterminated on numerous occasions. They kept uh, building nests inside the walls of the hospital, said to be the size of house cats. Uh, and while their pinchers were not strong enough to cut off a finger or a toe, they could and did pinch hard enough to create gashes that had to be closed with stitches a lot of the time. Uh, they could also fly short distances using some kind of helicopter propeller type appendage uh, emanating from the center of their backs. And they could uh, start fires with their minds. Land crabs, by the way, uh, are in the same animal genus as the Florida sea chicken, which includes a variety of other species that are not fucking real. Tell me, tell me one of you still thought, <laughs> still thought for a few seconds that there used to be a small, <laughs> small forest crab living in Pennsylvania that could also fly around like a weird little helicopter. Uh, no, <laughs> no, I have no idea what Crab Hill is named after. The facility is situated in Chester County near the borough of Spring City. I'm an if I'm a fucking I'm a fucking jackass. I just keep thinking about these crabs. Sorry, that's so funny to me. It was a huge institution. It was a whole complex of structures: the Philadelphia Building, Quaker Hall, Rockwell Hall, Franklin Hall, Noble Hall, Union Hall, uh, Vincennes Hall, Tenekim Hall, Industry Hall. A lot of fucking halls. Most of the buildings were uh, completed with the first two years. Uh, within the first two years, of the facility's opening. Numerous farm buildings also completed in the first wave of construction, as well as a uh, sewage plant, as well as a power plant. And it had all this shit because, well, today, like, Philly is, you know, basically grown to the point that, you know, 
Pennhurst is located in the suburbs of the suburbs, you know, down the road from an outlet mall. But back then it was, uh, it was in the country. That was, that was part of the point of it. You know, uh, I think Baldini said 25 miles. When I looked at MapQuest, it said about 30 miles from, uh, from Philly proper. To be away from the city, separated from everybody, was the point of it. Sent, uh, you know, people were sent to a place where, where no one would have to see them. No one would have to think about them. You know, truly ostracized from the people of Philadelphia. So they didn't have to feel any guilt over, over sending them over there. And, and there is another reason they were sent far away that's even more fucked up. The uh, so-called best minds of the 19th century had became, uh, become convinced that poverty, crime, prostitution, drunkenness, etc., all caused by, quote, mental defect. And removing the, quote, defectives from society and prevented their procre- preventing excuse me, their procreation would certainly solve the problem of the feeble-minded. For all time, you know, uh, while doing so would also cure the ills of society for which they were being blamed, Penhurst was a product of pseudoscience that asserted that people with intellectual disabilities needed to be shut away from the world for their own benefit and, more important to these people, for the benefit of the larger society around them. You know, these people thought they could rid society of essentially like criminal nature by sending people with cognitive disorders out to institutions and keeping them from breeding. I'm not sure how they arrived at this conclusion about, you know, like the criminal stuff. Like, had any of these leading minds ever met a criminal? You know, I mean, a lot of criminals, you know, are, are anything but feeble-minded. I mean, did they think uh, Billy the Kid and the Jesse James gang, all those guys were, uh, uh, other outlaws were mentally handicapped? I'm pretty sure you don't pull off a stagecoach robbery if literally everyone in your gang has the, uh, the intellectual capacity of, like, a young child. I feel, I feel like the leading minds of the day could have thought this one through a little bit more. A little, little less scotch, gentlemen. A little, little more discussion. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they're just tired. Sometimes you make bad decisions when you're tired. Maybe they just needed one good night's rest on a Lisa mattress. God damn it. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Lisa, driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody. Lisa is an innovative direct-to-consumer online mattress brand, a company that is socially conscious, a company that hates people sleeping in cages. If Penders would have been ran by Lisa Mattress, uh, it'd still be here today because it'd be, it'd be a good place to go. It'd be a model institution. Why? Because Lisa cares. For every 10 mattresses Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 program. Who else does that? I love it. They also plant one tree for every mattress sold, donate 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. Not to mention with the patented universal adaptive feel, Lisa is designed for all types of sleepers. Features three premium foam layers, including a 2-inch Avena foam top layer for cooling and breathability, a 2-inch memory foam middle layer for body contouring and pressure relief, a 6-inch dense core support foam for durability and structure, works for sleepers of all sizes, and is good for some uh, bedroom tomfoolery. My wife, Lindsay, uh, queen of the suck, she loves sleeping on a Lisa mattress, on ours, and sometimes she loves not sleeping on a Lisa mattress. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean. Those foam layers, they can, uh, they can handle some pressure. And now Lisa is continuing to expand its offerings to include the Lisa pillow, blanket, foundation, and frame. Try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. Available in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. This 100% American-made mattress. Ships compressed in a box right to your door. You can try it at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City, Virginia Beach. At over 80 West Elm stores nationwide, get 160 bucks off when you go to leesa.com slash timesuck. Link in the episode description. You fucking get over there. All right, now back to a story about a place that undoubtedly had nothing but the shittiest of shit mattresses. I wouldn't be surprised if they had mattresses literally made out of shit. Uh, the original idea for Penhurst was to erect a facility for, for uh, not less than 500 persons and specified 
The building shall be in two groups, one for educational and industrial department and one for the custodial or asylum department. It was declared that, that this institution shall be entirely and specifically devoted to the reception, detention, care, and training of epileptics and of idiotic and feeble-minded persons of either sex. Shall provide separate classification of the numerous groups embraced under the terms epileptics and idiotic and imbecile and feeble-minded. I know the terms change, don't they? Uh, cases afflicted with other epilepsy paralysis shall have a due proportion of space and care in the custodial department. It also talks about that. Specifically determined that the process of an agricultural training uh, course shall be primarily considered in the educational department, employment of the inmates in the care and raising of stock and the cultivation of small fruits, vegetables, roots, etc. shall be made tributary when possible to the maintenance of an institution. All inmates shall be subject of such rules and regulations as the board of trustees may adopt. And, and yes, you are hearing about how they were uh, supposed to work, which I'm, which I'm not – I don't know, morally opposed to, but that became a big uh, kind of problem too is basically uh, some of these people became essentially like indentured servants or really I guess the, the more proper term would be slaves. Like they weren't able to leave. They weren't allowed to leave and they were – and they had to work. Uh, a lot of the food uh, would be grown at Penhurst for the people of Penhurst by the inmates. Uh, inmates, patients. But I say inmates because in my mind it seems like a prison. And again, eventually because of overcrowding, the separation of different groups would not last. One person you know is there because their IQ is 20. Another is there because they have seizures. Someone else has no seizures. Their IQ is above average, but, uh, you know, they're, they're paralyzed. Their legs don't work uh, right, and uh, off to Panthers they go. It, it ended up being essentially just this aisle of misfit toys. Uh, the construction of Panthers, almost a continual process for 25 years, beginning when the legislature authorized institution, 1903, uh, stopping at the end of the 1920s when the Great Depression, Great Depression began. Uh, the, inster, the Eastern Pennsylvania Institution admitted its first client on November 23, 1908, and there were problems basically right from the start. Beginning as early as 1912, the board report, uh, reports contained numerous complaints about the need for funds to enact changes and repairs to buildings that were less than a decade old. So but open four years. They're already like, ah, shit's falling apart. The 1912 report included requests for 25000 for general repairs on buildings that had only been used for four years again. Uh, included on the list of needed work was to paint the buildings, replace unsanitary closets and unsafe bathrooms. Rebuild stairways, add such ventilating apparatus as is absolutely necessary. Overcrowding was a problem almost as soon as Penhurst opened its doors. Uh, designed originally, as I've stated, for epileptics and persons with intellectual and developmental disabilities, there was tremendous pressure almost immediately to admit many different uh, people, many other different people from society steeped in a, a society steeped in a eugenics movement uh, who wanted to remove from the gene pool of various people, including just immigrants, orphans, criminals. I am going to come back to the phrase eugenics move, uh, movement here in a bit. For now, we're going to keep going. But, but yeah, yeah that, I mean, that's the problem. Again, there wasn't, there wasn't the specialization we have now. And uh, they just basically, you know, anybody, some family didn't want to take care of for whatever reason, they would try and put them in an institution of some sort. Uh, the state admission of Penhurst to house epileptics and the feeble-minded came under fire within the institution as early as 1912 as well. And that year, the superintendent reported to the board of trustees in chilling language, that it is without question absolutely wrong to place the feeble-minded and epileptic in the same institution. They are not the same. They are different. One from the other, one as day, one as night. They are mentally, physically, and morally incompatible and require entirely different treatment. So at least some people back then understood how stupid it was uh, to house epileptics alongside those with severe intellectual disabilities. However, the admission of individuals with epilepsy and normal intelligence would continue for years. Why? Because, again, they, the society just didn't know where else to put these people, didn't have any other place to put these people. Eventually, uh, however, the mission of the institution 
was eventually clarified, and for a while, only people with intellectual disabilities were admitted. Now, while the terms mental hospital and insane asylum uh, are often used in association with Penrith, again, it was neither. It was it was supposed to be this idyllic, thriving community for those who did not fit to uh, societal norms. It was supposed to be an institution that, you know, has this working farm with cows, chickens, and pigs, and a bunch of different crops. It had an orchard, you know, with cherry trees. There was a shoe repair shop, mattress-making facility. Not a Lisa one. Uh, and also not a shit one. To my knowledge, they also weren't uh, making mattresses out of shit. Uh, they, had a, they had a wood shop, rug weaving course. You know, the, the people trying to build some life skills. Some people eventually, you know, would get out of Penhurst and be able to go hold, you know, jobs and things. They had uh, dances, Boy Scout troops, baseball teams, visits from the circus. For many years, the, uh, the Hoxie Brothers Circus would make an annual one-day appearance at Penhurst. I guess some of the residents would uh, join the circus during these annual visits. I, in my mind, I picture some of them escaping with the circus. Uh Holiday parties, band concerts, Easter egg hunts with a big Easter egg bunny, fucking uh, Halloween parties with a great pumpkin, all kinds of stuff. And uh, and hearing all that in a, in a way kind of bums me out because, you know, you, you could tell there was a lot of people there who were, who were clearly trying to make Penhurst this desirable place to live, this desirable place for people to stay uh, who are intellectually, you know, disabled, and, and it just didn't work out. It just uh, – the vision did not last and it's just – it's sad that it became such a sad place to be. They just, they just didn't know – their heart was in the right place. They just didn't know how to make life consistently good for those people. Maybe they could have figured it all out if they, uh, if they would have had access to a little more knowledge, a little more knowledge provided by today's sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. Yes, Time Suck is brought to you again today by The Great Courses Plus. Build a better brain with The Great Courses Plus. There's uh, wonderful courses in critical thinking, courses in learning about learning. Uh, so many cool history courses coming up. Uh, we have we have a suck on Spartacus coming up right around the corner. I say coming up; they're there now. All the stuff is there now, so I, I got to clarify that it's gonna be it's gonna be a wild ride through Rome's gladiator uh, days here pretty soon on the suck though. And with the great courses plus, you know you can you can prep. You can visit the newly finished Roman amphitheater, circa eighty C.E., where the emperor Titus would celebrate the consolidation of his family's dynasty by hosting one hundred days of gladiatorial games, bloodthirsty, vicious. You know, the spectacle is uh, captivating. After learning about the Colosseum's engineering, you can experience what it was like to be there for the games. This is just one of the many presentations on Rome provided by Professor Robert Garland. It's an awesome primer, incredible companion piece to our upcoming Spartacus Time Suck. And uh, you'll love this. You'll love so many other courses. I use them uh, on the regular for my research now, man. And with the Great Courses Plus, uh, we've arranged a special limited-time offer for our Time Suckers. Sign up for a free month of unlimited access to all the lectures at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Uh, start your free month uh, episode link, or excuse me, link to the uh, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck in the episode description. All right. 1913. Pennsylvania legislature, partially in response to concerns raised by the Penhurst Board of Trustees, uh, appointed a commission for the care of the feeble-minded. The commission's conclusions included a statement that the feeble-minded were uh, unfit for citizenship and they posed a menace to the peace of society. They recommended a program of custodial care to break the endless reproductive chain. Many were placed in the care of Penhurst, removed from society, sometimes for decades. None of the patients were free to leave, and regardless of IQ level, they were treated as children their whole lives, referred to as children their whole lives. Uh, unpaid labor is provided by the committed. It becomes essential to the survival of the institution. You know, they become a, a slave labor, you know, forced to work uh, at the facility. Work boys and 
quote, work girls were found in every part of the facility, patients providing care for other patients many times, working in the custodial department, in the laundry, the kitchen, housekeeping, maintenance facilities. Uh, uh, the board uh, started making some, some money off this place. They, they reported a profit of more than $50,000 for the farming operation uh, of, of a two-year period ending in May 1926, adjusted for inflation, the 50000 in earnings would be equivalent to more than 650000 today. In 1921-1922, the institution uh, uh, laundry processed nearly 1.7 million pieces of clothing, bedding, and other goods. This mountain of work was, was completed by four paid employees and 40, quote-unquote, patients. So, you know, they had a lot of people being forced to work there. In 1918, uh, Penhurst was billed as a world apart from the rest of society, both to keep the feeble-minded from the public, also to end the intermixing of their genes with the population. And I, and I keep hinting around at it. Yeah, this is that whole eugenics thing. Part of what I, uh, you know, I was touching on earlier, you know, that uh, by keeping the intellectually disabled and criminals from, from breeding, the, the thought was you could end crime. This was an, uh, a serious notion in the early 20th century. Uh, you know, there, there, there was this belief that certain personality traits could and should be bred out of the population or, uh, or rather, you know, uh, no longer be allowed to continue to be bred into the population. Everyone, everyone wants to talk about Hitler when it comes to eugenics or forced sterilization program. But there was a lot of talk at, at high levels of society and government about enacting eugenics laws in America in the early 20th century as well. It got really popular in the 1920s, 1930s, but it started before that. Uh, there was actually a film called The Black Stork. Uh, came out Early film came out in 1917, supposedly based on a true story. It depicted a heroic doctor that allowed a syphilitic uh, infant to die after convincing the child's parents that it was better to spare society one more outcast. That's a fucking... Movie. Are people clapping at that part? Good, but bravo. Good, good for him. Let, let the baby die. Uh, the American Eugenics Society was founded in the 1920s. The term eugenics was first coined by Englishman Francis Galton in the mid-1800s. Galton was an intellectual whose body of work spanned many fields, including uh, statistics, psychology, meteorology, genetics. Incidentally, he was also the uh, half-cousin of Charles Darwin. I've heard of him. Uh, Galton's first academic foray into eugenics analyzed the characteristics such as superior intelligence – of England's upper classes and concluded they were hereditary, uh, therefore desirable traits that could be passed down uh, through generations. Uh, Galt advocated a selective breeding program for humans in his book, Hereditary Genius, saying, consequently, as it is easy to obtain by careful selection a permanent breed of dogs or horses uh, gifted with peculiar powers of running or of doing anything else, so it would be quite practical to produce a highly gifted race of men by judicious marriages during several consecutive generations. Now, obviously, this this uh, whole kind of notion was, was tainted very much. The well was poisoned very strongly when uh, when Hitler got a hold of this information. It was like, yeah, that's how we fucking that's how we get the, the white master race going. Uh, as I as I yell that, I, I, I again think about the neighbors in the building that could maybe only hear me say that. You know, they just they just hear like mumbling, and then they. <laughs> He's screaming white master race. Like, ah, fuck. Or worse, they're like, hell yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so Penhurst becomes part of this movement. Uh, the sexes were separated uh, on the Penhurst campus to uh, to keep people from reproducing was a large part of that. In, in the biennial, biennial report to the legislature submitted by the board of trustees, Penhurst chief physician quotes Dr. Henry Goddard, a leading eugenist, as follows, saying, every feeble-minded person is a potential criminal. This is the main doctor at Penhurst. Uh, the quote was used to support the argument for an expansion of the institution. It goes on to say the general public, although more convinced today than ever before, 
that it is a good thing to segregate the idiot or the distinct imbecile, they have not as yet been convinced as to the proper treatment of the defective delinquent, which is the brighter and more dangerous individual. It is now generally understood that feeble-mindedness is in the great majority of instances the, the direct result of hereditary transmission of mental defect. It is also known that the feeble-minded female is very likely to bear children and that these children are almost certain to be defective or in some way permanently dependent. The feeble-minded girl is more of a menace to society than the feeble-minded boy. Statistics show that feeble-minded girls and boys marry in the ratio of three to one. It would seem, therefore, that the state is not adequately uh, that if the state is not adequately equipped to care for all of the feeble-minded, the feeble-minded girl should have institutional care in preference to the boy, since she is the greater menace. Fucked up language, man. <laughs> Fucked up language here. Super insulting. Uh, again, forced sterilization never, never caught on as a real uh, political or scientific movement in this country since it died out after the world saw what uh, Hitler's eugenic move, uh, movement looked like. How, however, in the cases of, of certain people who uh, are truly incapable of raising their own children, I, I don't necessarily – I know this is not a popular opinion – uh, I don't necessarily disagree with uh, some kind of mandatory sterilization in some sense. I mean, I, I do have a fucking bit on mandatory sterilization in one of my stand-up uh, specials. Uh, and hear me out. I'm not going fucking Hitler. I'm not going Hitler or anybody. This has nothing to do with race. To me, it has to do with common sense and trying to prevent the most senseless tragedy you can. And let me tell you a story about why I have this belief. All right? This comes from personal experience. Well, I cannot recall her name. There was a woman I supervised child visits for at Child Protective Services back in Spokane, Washington, many years ago, a woman I'll never forget. Uh, she was only allowed to see her kids a few times a month. I believe it was twice a month uh, for an hour and a half, 90 minutes at a time, and only at the local CPS offices where we had visitation rooms. Little rooms with a few toys, few chairs, and a big window, so anyone walking down the hall, usually an actual social worker, you know, I was just an intern, could peek in. My job... My horrible job was to sit in one of the chairs in one of these little rooms with the clipboard, sit in there, you know, with, uh, you know, the, the kid or kids and the parent or parents and take notes on the visitation. Take notes uh, on the visitation while the visit was happening. Was the parent engaged with the child? Did the child seem responsive to the parent? Did the child seem like they wanted to be there? Did the child seem like they wanted the parent to be there? Was the, was the child happy when the parent showed up for the visit? Was the child sad when they left? It was a fucking terrible job. Uh, it will haunt me on some level forever. Felt like uh, I was sitting in a big pit of fucking sadness and despair. I got to share hour after hour some of the saddest moments of these families' lives. Uh, the kids would be driven to our offices by whatever relative they were living with or a foster parent or social worker or, or employee of some group home where they were staying. A lot of tears shed in those visits by a lot of people, and it was always hardest on the kids. You know, the kids either uh, loved their parents dearly and didn't want the visit to end and have to be sent back to wherever, uh, whatever home or facility they were, they were staying at. Or the kids, uh, you know, were furious with or hated their parents and didn't want to see them at all. So you, so you either felt terrible for the parent or parents or terrible for the kid or kids or, you know, sad for fucking everyone. It was just a lose, lose, lose situation. And anyway, this one woman, her visits uh, and visitation rights made no sense to me. She was allowed to see her kid, the kid that I was supervising the visits for, but she was never going to be allowed to bring him home. Not ever. Uh, she'd never be allowed to be in a room, uh, a room, excuse me, alone with her kid. And why? Because she was a convicted level three sex offender. I do not remember the exact nature of the molestation charge against her. Uh, I do remember that she had been molested herself 
and that it was an instance of her acting out on a very young child, like under the age of two. And uh, and I also uh, uh, don't remember her coming across as a predator. She, she came across as someone who didn't understand why it was wrong to behave sexually with a child. And, and why didn't she understand? Because she was very intellectually disabled. She was very cognitively impaired. She had an IQ, uh, I think somewhere down in the, like the 50s. She lived on disability money. And, and the kid she was visiting wasn't her only kid. I found out she had several. Her, her social worker, uh, a man named Sivu, uh, told me that she had a kid uh, every year or two. She's probably 30 when I met her. And that every time she had another kid, it was taken from the hospital, from the neonatal unit, you know, at the hospital, placed in a group home immediately due to the com- combination of her sex offender status and her intellectual disability. So not illegal for her to get pregnant, but illegal for her to keep her own baby and raise it. So I asked, why doesn't the state sterilize her? To me, that made the most sense in this particular situation. And honestly, it still fucking does. And Sivu looked at me like my name was Adolf Hitler. And he talked about how that can never happen because of the history of the Nazi's eugenics program and essentially the inherent immorality of a eugenics program in general. But I wonder, what is more inhumane? What's more immoral? Forcing an American citizen to be sterilized or placing one baby after another into foster care, babies that you could prevent uh, being put into that system. You know, what seemed immoral to me was allowing uh, this woman to keep having kids, you know, that she would sometimes be allowed to visit, which I still don't fucking understand, and and that she'd never be allowed to, to race. What kind of sense does that make? To me, forced sterilization in some cases is the most moral thing you can do to prevent uh, future human suffering. It's not right to send more babies into an overburdened foster and adoption system, you know, when it can be easily avoided. And, uh, and not a popular opinion, I know. But but I but I do think it has some uh, uh, logic to it. I, I I do imagine also I do know the most logical. I, can, I feel some of you being like, nah. Here's why we can't do this, and I will address this. I imagine the most logical argument against it is the slippery slope argument, which is in this instance, you know, if you legislate for sterilization in this particular situation, then it could end up being carried out in a similar situation, but maybe not quite as black and white. You know, and then in another similar uh, similar situation, similar to the previous one, not as obvious, less obvious, and it just, just keeps becoming less and less obvious, and it keeps going so on and so forth until eventually sterilizations are being carried out in uh, morally ambiguous or or morally questionable or morally reprehensible situations, like when someone who just can't you know maybe can't currently uh, afford to have another child but might be able to in the future, and suddenly you know fucking Third Reich here we are all over again. Okay, so maybe Sivu was right to tell me. My idea was bad in, in, in that sense. You know, it, it might be best uh, in that one situation, but it could then be later used in situations it shouldn't be able to be used in. So, damn it. No, again, no easy solutions, man. No easy solutions is the, is the theme of this suck today. Okay, so in 1930, the first buildings on the upper campus, known as the Female Colony, are completed at Penhurst. Uh, also in 1930, another labor training facility is opened. Uh, the chief physician stating that the manual training department is... A place of interest to the boys. They are taught the names, uses, and care of tools. Learn to handle them properly by daily practice. They first make uh, simple articles requiring no joints, such as match scratchers, uh, coat hangers, etc. And after that, uh, they've mastered the rudiments of fitting and, and, and joining. They can handle their tools with ease. They are allowed to make small tables, chairs, stools, etc. And then a lot of these things would be sold. Uh, many uh, beautiful and useful articles, you know, again, made for sale to visitors and relatives. Profit going to the Children's Amusement Fund, uh, which would purchase... Luxuries such as Easter eggs, Christmas gifts, party prizes, you know, which again is cool, but also kind of like a kind of bums me out, man, that they had to, you know, make furniture so they could have Christmas gifts. Ah, it's fucking sad. Also, at the age of 14, the uh, female students would attend the home economic department 
At the completion of this course, each girl uh, would be capable of preparing and serving a complete meal. You know, there would be uh, beneficial training such as pressing, mending, and sewing. Uh, so again, you know, clearly some people trying to make life as nice as, it, as possible for the patients at Penhurst. Long before Baldini showed up with his investigative cameras. It just, uh, you know, it wasn't always terrible. It wasn't uh, terrible in theory. Staffing was an issue early on at Penhurst. For the first 50 years of its existence, uh, the majority of Penhurst employees were required to live on campus. Yeah, I bet that uh, I bet that hurt recruiting a little bit. You know, in the early years, the lack of suitable housing was often cited as one of the reasons why it was hard to hire and keep staff. Yeah, of course, you know, you just, uh, hey, you should apply at Penhurst, man. Uh, pay is good. Hours aren't that bad. Uh, they provide housing. Oh, that's cool. Where do they put you up? Uh, I didn't think uh, Penhurst was uh, was near any towns. I thought it was the middle of nowhere. Yeah, no, they no they put you up uh, in Penhurst. It's uh, it's not bad. You, you get used to it. After a while, you can kind of barely hear the screams and cries at night when you're trying to fall asleep. Yeah, sounds like a nightmare. Uh, an inf- informational booklet sent out in the 1940s reveals uh, continued overcrowding at Penhurst, saying the patient population is at present approximately 2,400 with a waiting list of nearly 1,500. Um, yeah, that's, uh, and that's hundreds over capacity. Uh, boys and girls are equally divided, live in two separate colonies. Children are admitted between the ages of 6 and 16. Um, in, the, in the 1940s, uh, also a dark side of Penhurst uh, begins to grow. There were, there were two Penhursts from the beginning. The legislature created them you know, when they directed that the building shall be in two groups, which we said earlier. You know, there's that educational industrial department, and then there's that custodial and asylum department. And there was some public awareness of the educational and industrial department, but but very little public awareness of the other departments. Very little photos come from that era. Uh, basically, like uh, all the kind of promo for the facility would be from the educational and industrial department, which is people who are a little higher functioning. That's where all the baseball teams and all the you know uh, kids uh, doing different activities and stuff. That's that's where they were staying. The other part, the custodial or asylum department, was was kind of invisible. Because, uh, you know, it had become incredibly fucking sad. Uh, it had become a, a nightmare for patients to be due to chronic neglect and understaffing. You know, basically like the, the patients housed in the custodial department were thought to be uh, too intellectually disabled to be able to be educated or to be able to contribute in any kind of work uh, fashion at the institution. So they were just kind of left to rot, uh, neglected, you know, much and much, uh, le- much, and much less uh, staff would be devoted, uh, devoted to their care. You know, their buildings would be the last to be repaired or, uh, you know, any kind of funding given to them. And the quarters began to fall into just, you know, just disgusting disrepair that would uh, just get worse as time goes on that we'll talk about in some kind of uh, court court testimony that I'll mention later from when the place eventually gets uh, sued and shut down. In 1955, the in-house population of Penhurst peaks at 3,500 individuals. You know, it's like over 1,500 beyond capacity. Two annexes of the facility are opened in former uh, tuberculosis sanitariums. Hundreds of residents are transferred to these new facilities, and uh, the, av- the availability of this additional capacity allows for the population to then grow to 4,100 individuals, um, with uh, 3,200 by 1961 living in the uh, kind of core part of the facility. By 1967, it's not uncommon for uh, no more than two attendants to be assigned to a residence housing up to 100 individuals. That's not a good ratio, two to 100. Uh, the actual care and supervision of the residents uh, many times is carried out by uh, patients themselves, by those work boys and work girls. And then in 1968, you know, Baldini shows up, uh, you know, right before he right before he gets in trouble for Baldini's weenie. No, I got to stop saying that. It's fucking this guy, this guy was an amazing guy. But I want you to, to take that away from the episode. But he shows up, does his expose, numerous newspaper articles, legislative inquiries and uh, other investigations follow. 
there had also been a number of ones, you know, that had already happened, you know, before this expose. Uh, but, you know, things just kept getting kind of swept under the rug. People would get outraged for a second and then things would go back to, uh, you know, uh, normal, quote unquote, at Pennhurst. 1971, the Pennsylvania chapter of the ARC, an advocacy organization for individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities, files a lawsuit against the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. 1972, the lawsuit is settled and it establishes the right uh, to attend public schools to all children with intellectual disabilities and for them to no longer be shunned. Because uh, children with intellectual disabilities prior to this in Pennsylvania were – had been uh, you know, excluded from public school even if they weren't staying in an institution like Pennhurst. They weren't allowed to go to school. On May 30th, 1974, uh, the landmark civil rights case, Halderman versus Pennhurst State School is filed in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania by a mother of a Pennhurst resident. The case would eventually reach the U.S. Supreme Court and be assigned uh, District Judge Raymond Broderick. The United States of America uh, moved to intervene as a plaintiff in the Halderman case. Excerpts from the from the fact section of the federal district court case um, demonstrate the horrific conditions that lack of funding created at Pennhurst. You know, it was uh, only through the dedication of the overworked staff it seemed that uh, any humanity at all was afforded to people in this, in this institution. Let's let's talk about some of these experts. This is uh, the court experts of what was going on there, and uh, and this is in you know this isn't that long ago. This is in the early seventies said no psychologists are on duty at Pennhurst at night or over the weekend. Thus, if a resident has an emotional crisis, he or she may go without treatment until the next morning or until the weekend is over. Uh, At Pennhurst, restraints are used as control measures in lieu of adequate staffing. Restraints can either be physical or chemical. The physical restraints range from placing the individual into a seclusion room to binding the person's hands or ankles with muffs or posies, binding the individual to a bear uh, bed or (laughs) to a bear. That would be a fucking weird turn. Uh, people were outraged because a lot of the uh, patients were being uh, strapped to bears. They had several uh, black bears and two grizzlies. Uh, the grizzlies were used in extreme cases, and when a patient really acted out, they were strapped to a bear, and they're like, all right, well, now you get to fucking spend 12 hours on a grizzly's back. Uh, that is insane. No, they were bound to uh, beds or chairs. Chemical restraints were, you know, be like psychotropic you know, medication, you know, tranquilization. Other physical restraints could be uh, used due to staff shortages. An ex- extreme example is a, is a female resident who during the month of June 1976 was physically restrained for 651 total hours and five minutes. For the month of August, uh, she was in physical restraints for 720 hours. Uh, during September, 674 hours, 20 minutes. During the month of October, 647 hours. So a lot, a lot of hours. Uh, this resident was uh, so extremely self-destructive that she totally blinded herself. She was not enrolled in any occupational therapy until early 1977. Once initiated there, her programming has apparently been quite successful. She's now able to be out of restraints for as much as four hours a day. Had this programming been initiated earlier, her self-inflicted injuries might have been avoided or at least lessened. Now, this one to me sounds a little nitpicky, and I'm going to tell you. I'm going to explain why. I mean, yeah, they can look in hindsight and be like, yeah, man, once they found this worked, you know, she didn't have to be restrained as much. Why weren't they doing that earlier? Well, because they didn't fucking know that it would work. You know, she was incredibly uh, violent to herself, person who was severely mentally disabled and was trying to hurt herself all the time. And, yeah, they fucking tied her up because they didn't know what else to do. Is that the staff's fault? Is it, is it the staff's fault that somebody, you know, was born with disabilities so severe they're prone to attacking themselves so viciously that they fucking blind themselves? That is so horrific. But, I mean, seriously, life, life is not fair. If someone is born with a strong desire to, uh, you know, to run out to the edge of a cliff and then throw themselves off of it, you know, and, and your responsibility is to keep them from not doing that, and you, uh, you do so by, uh, you know, tying them up or maybe bolting the, bolting the door, something. 
then then there's like this huge portion of society that I feel like is going to cry out in outrage. Be like, how dare you? How dare you imprison that human being like an animal? Like an animal, you monster. And then, you know, and then you can be like, right, okay, all right, fuck it. All right, let them go. Let them uh, run where they want. And then the person runs out the door and throws himself off a cliff. And then the same people are going to cry out again. What, what were you thinking letting them go? You should have tied, you should have tied them up for his own good. You know, it does feel like, I feel bad for the, uh, the, a lot of the staff at Penners where they were just in a no-win situation. You know, they were just, uh, you know, short staffs forced to, uh, you know, try and do their best to take care of a, a very hard-to-take-care-of population of people. Uh, the report goes on saying seclusion rooms have been used to punish aggressive behavior. And, and these are all, you know, again, these are all like uh, examples of like how dare they do this. Uh, this says uh, one 18-year-old individual spent six consecutive days in seclusion in 1974 for assaulting a Down syndrome resident. Uh, and again, a uh, weird citation of things being horrible, a weird example, you know, at Penhurst. It's like, how, how dare you put that young man in solitary for six whole days? Uh, motherfucker, he just beat the shit out of somebody who has Down syndrome. What are we supposed to do? Tell him in a firm voice to stop punching other people in the face a bunch? Uh, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy, what do we say about punching people in the face hard and often? You know, what, what are you supposed to do? Uh, it says the physical environment at Penhurst is hazardous to the residents, both psychologically and physically. There is often excrement and urine on ward floors, and the living areas don't meet minimal professional standards for cleanliness. Outbreaks of pinworms and infectious disease are common. Okay, this seems pretty hard to defend. I got to say, this, this complaint seems to be very valid. Uh, you know, that's, that's about you got to clean the floors. People should not have to live in a place covered in pinworm-infested shit. That seems, uh, that seems pretty fixable. But again, probably due to short staff. Uh, it says uh, there is not adequate space for the residents. The living areas do not provide privacy for those persons who can handle privacy. Uh, this does not seem to be, there does not seem to be adequate activity areas or program areas or even general activity areas within the general living area or even adequate activity program areas away from the home living area. Love all that legal speak. Uh, yes, yeah, so severe overcrowding. Again, valid complaint. Uh, the environment at Penhurst is not only not conducive to learning new skills, but it is so poor that it contributes to losing skills already learned. For example, Penhurst has a toilet training program, but one uh, who has successfully completed the program may not be able to practice their newly learned skill and is therefore are likely to use it. Yeah, that complaint seems pretty valid as well. Once you learn how to use a toilet, uh, you should be able to continue to have access to a toilet. Uh, not sure what the hell is going on, keeping people from toilets. Uh, again, probably severe overcrowding. That sounds very sad to me. Then they say most toilet areas do not have towels, soap, or toilet paper, and the bathroom facilities are often filthy and in a state of disrepair. Obnoxious odors and excessive noise permeate the atmosphere at Penhurst. Such conditions are not conducive to habilitation. To, yeah, habilitation. Moreover, the noise level in the day rooms is often so high that many residents simply stop speaking. Yeah, okay. Uh, no soap or toilet paper in the bathrooms on, on, on the reg. That is super fucked up. Uh, I feel like that problem is, uh, you know, strongly linked to the shit covering the floors situation. A little toilet paper, uh, a little bit of soap might, uh, you know, kind of knock out both problems. Mom, Mama Ridgeway would have lost her shit at Penhurst over all the, the, the shit other people were losing. So many filthy weens needing to be cleaned. Mama Ridgeway would have come down with carpal tunnel. After just a few days, which is all the wean cleaning she would have been doing. Uh, man, though, that is terrible. I mean, I mean, we've all used a gross bathroom. Like you, we've all been traveling, and you've walked into—I've walked into a uh, you know place a few times, even where I've really had to go. Where I'm like, I can't. Now I'm not going in there. 
I am not. I uh, I I do not. That's that's when you know a place is dirty when you don't feel comfortable taking a shit in a place. And this bathroom just sounds like basically like the worst a bathroom could be. Like uh, at this point, it's not really a bathroom. It's just a it's just a room. It's just an area. It's just a physical location that you just shit in, like an animal. That's terrible. Uh, injuries to residents or by other residents are common. It says through through self abuse. Uh, for example, on January eighth, nineteen seventy five. Oh, not just through self abuse. Check this out. It says by January eighth, nineteen seventy five. This is oh, um, one individual bit off three quarters of the earlobe and part of the outer ear ah, of another resident while that second resident was asleep. Which is that sounds so horrific to me because, I mean, either you're severely drugged up, and I guess you don't feel it, and then you wake up with part of your ear being chewed off. Or you've been restrained, which I think is the more likely, sad, sadly, more likely scenario. You do feel it. You're, you're restrained, and and you can just there's somebody's face right next to your face, and they're nibbling your ear off. That's some Stephen King shit. Uh, about this same period, one resident pushed a second uh, uh, resident to the floor off a higher floor, resulting in the death of the second resident. Such resident uh, abuse uh, continues in January 1977 alone says there was 833 minor and 25 major injuries, injuries reported. And that, yes, that is clearly terrible. 25 major injuries in one month. Very bad. Clearly a staffing problem. Need more staff. Need more vigilant staff. A lot of bad decisions being made. Uh, in addition, there is staff abuse of residents. In 1976, one resident was raped by a staff person. One resident was badly bruised when a staff person hit him with a set of keys. Uh, another resident was thrown several feet across the room by a staff person. One resident was hit by a staff person with a a shackle belt. On each occasion, an investigation was conducted and the staff person responsible was suspended and or terminated. Uh, I'm hoping in addition to be suspended and or terminated, the the rape person was criminally prosecuted. What the fuck? I'm hoping that just goes without saying. Maybe that was brought up in a different, uh, you know, segment of court testimony. Uh, to me, that is that is you know a little more than a workplace violation. Just you know, uh, all right, Steve, I got the results of your six month review in and. uh, Look, we're going to start with the positive. We love that you're punctual. Love that you dot all your I's. Love that you cross all your T's on your daily patient assessments. A lot of good qualities. However, uh, ugh, what we do not care for is the uh, is the raping. We don't like it. Uh, we really hope that you would stop raping after we suspended you last year. And now I'm afraid we're going to have to let you go. It's uh, We're going to have to fire you. It's just uh, you're, you're terminated. It's too much raping. So, Jesus. Uh, many of the restaurants, uh, restaurants, many of the residents have suffered physical deterioration, intellectual, and behavioral regression during their residency at Pennhurst. Terry Lee Halderman, the original plaintiff in the action, was admitted to Pennhurst in 1966 when she was 12 years of age. And it says during her 11 years at Pennhurst, as a result of attacks and accidents, she has lost several teeth, suffered a fractured jaw, fractured fingers, had a fractured toe, numerous lacerations, cuts, scratches, and bites. Prior to her admission to Penhurst, Terry Lee could say, Dada, Mama, Nono, Baba, and Nana, she no longer speaks at all. Fuck. So, yes, I get the lawsuit completely now. This this one seems uh, exceptionally bad. That's a lot of fractures. That is a lot of fractures. Uh, wish, wish they had some notes as to how she received some of them. She may, may not be able to communicate, though. Why? I mean, that's a, a sad part of this. You know, if she can't communicate, she couldn't tell people. What had actually happened to her, they just would see bite marks on her body or, you know, whatever, or, you know, fractured bones and know that something had happened to her as a result of either violence to herself or probably more likely violence from others. 
Uh, you know, so, you know, Scott, it's like, was anybody paying attention to what was going on there? I mean, they, they were actually, but again, if there's not enough staff to handle all this overcrowding, what, what can you do? They needed more funding. They needed more staff. Uh, it says plaintiff Robert Height, born in 1965, was admitted to Penhurst in, in September 1974, placed on a ward with 45 other residents. His parents visited him two and, uh, two and one half weeks after his admission and found that already he was badly bruised, his mouth was cut, he was heavily drugged and didn't recognize his mother. On this visit, the Heights observed 25 residents walking the ward naked, others partially dressed. During this short period of time, Robert had lost skills that he had possessed prior to his admission, and the Heights promptly removed Robert from the institution. Mrs. Height commenting that she would not leave a dog in conditions like that. Fuck. Yeah, this complaint seems pretty bad, too. A lot of bad stuff happened. This is terrible. It says approximately 21 of the 45 living units at Penhurst are locked to prevent individuals from leaving their living units. Those individuals over the age of 18 who have been, quote-unquote, voluntarily admitted to Penhurst are theoretically free to leave the institution at any time. Those admitted on the petition of their parents are informed by their caseworker when they reach the age of 18, they don't have to remain at Penhurst. If the residents state that they wish to leave the institution and the staff determines that there is, you know, uh, no place for them in the community or believes that the individuals are not ready to go into the community, the staff can petition the court to have the individuals committed to the institution by the court. Furthermore, those residents who either do not understand their alternatives or are physically unable to indicate they wish to leave Penhurst will be deemed to have consented to their continued placement at the institution. Thus, the notion of voluntariness uh, in connection with admission as well as in connection with the right to leave Penhurst is an illusory concept. Uh, Few, if any, residents now have, nor did they have at the time of their admission, any adequate alternative to their institutionalization as a practical matter. Penhurst was and is their only alternative. Nearly all the parents of Penhurst residents who testified stated that they placed their children in Penhurst only as a last resort. And had there been community facilities or aid programs, their children would not have been placed at Penhurst. So uh, this complaint seems aimed more at society in general than it was at Penhurst. And I'm going to put a pin in that thought, and we're going to come back to that after the timeline. Uh, It's about to wrap up here. On October 4th, 1975, the Federal Developmental Disabilities Assistance and Bill of Rights Act is signed into law. It establishes finally a system for protection and advocacy organizations in each state, enumerates certain rights for people with intellectual disabilities, a major step in the right direction for the advancement of the rights of the disabled. On November 29th, 1975, the Federal Education for All Handicapped Children Act is signed into law. From April 1st, 1977 through June 1st, 1977, Halderman versus Penhurst is tried. The Honorable Raymond J. Broderick rules in favor of the residents, declaring that forced, institutionaliz- forced institutionalization of people with disabilities is unconstitutional. The district court determined that Penhurst provided such a dangerous, miserable environment for its residents that many of them actually suffered physical deterioration and intellectual regression during their stay in the institution. And then Penhurst, uh, there was a Penhurst longitudinal study conducted between uh, 1979 and 1985, found that Penhurst residents who moved to the community would be uh, better off in every way that we know how to measure. Before the relocation of residents, 60% of families of Penhurst residents opposed the residents leaving Penhurst. Six months after relocation, more than 80% of the same families came to agree that relocation had been the right decision. June 18, 1982, the U.S. Supreme Court rules in the case of Romeo versus Youngberg that the Constitution imparts a right to minimally adequate treatment for people involuntarily uh, committed to state institutions. The court defines the rights of such involuntarily committed uh, persons to uh, a right to be free from unreasonably bodily restraints and to a reasonably safe environment and whatever minimal training might be required to protect those interests. 
Romeo versus Youngberg was filed by the mother of an, 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 yeah, of an individual who received serious injuries after his commitment to Pennhurst. Uh, the defendants had prevailed at trial, but the trial results were overturned by the Third Circuit Court, which ordered a new trial to be held, and that case was settled before another trial was scheduled. And then in 1984, the final settlement agreement between the Halderman versus Pennhurst parties provides for the closure of Pennhurst. And then uh, a portion of Pennhurst property is repurposed as a residential home for, for Pennsylvania veterans in '86. And then on December 9th, 1987, the Pennhurst State School and Hospital is officially completely and totally shut down forever. Uh, then October 2010, uh, years later, to the shock and dismay of many, uh, especially those in the disability community, the now privately owned uh, Pennhurst, you know, it's kind of, I guess it'd be called an estate now, is turned into a Halloween attraction. Randy Bates, the uh, Bates Motel uh, Halloween attraction owner, turns Pennhurst's historic lower campus into a commercial haunted kind of uh, insane asylum type attraction. And with that, we will leave today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So, uh, you know, this suck was not what I expected. Uh, first off, I'll be honest. I, I thought Penhurst was an insane asylum. I had no idea it was a home for the intellectually disabled. And uh, I was surprised by my reaction to a lot of the material. Uh you know, I, I definitely didn't have a fuck those people at Penhurst for not taking better care of the patients a lot of the time. And, you know, and Baldini didn't either. You know, he realized the problem was a lot bigger than that. You know, Penhurst didn't fail because of the staff. It failed because of society. It was never built to succeed. You know, it wasn't uh, built for the right reasons. It wasn't given a proper staff, you know. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't put enough money into it. And, and, and why? Because, you know, why did all this happen? Well, because a lot of families felt that they had family members who were too hard to take care of themselves. So... You know, are those families at fault as much as Penhurst was for the treatment of the patients? Uh, no, I don't think so. You know, Penhurst was supposed to be able to take care of their patients, but it didn't. And, and why didn't it? Again, because, well, because it didn't have proper funding. And why didn't it have proper funding? Well, because not enough tax money was allocated to funding Penhurst. And why wasn't enough money allocated? Well, because the care of the intellectually disabled was not and, uh, and is not, frankly, a, a cultural priority. It's gotten better since 1968, since Baldini's report, you know. Uh, a, a report aired, interestingly, uh, the same year that the Special Olympics were founded by Eunice Kennedy Shriver, sister of JFK, mother of uh, Maria Shriver. Uh, you know, Penders have been closed for, for years now, but but are things better for the intellectually disabled today? I, you know, I would, I would think overall, but, uh, but, but in many ways, not. You know, for a lot of people, widespread abuse does continue. You know, I came across a November 21st, 2016 article in the Chicago Tribune called Suffering in Secret. Illinois, uh, or Illinois uh, hides abuse and neglect of adults with disabilities. The, the, uh, the article says yeah, the house had no address. The dead man had no name. Illinois officials blacked out those details from their investigative report. Nobody else was supposed to learn the man's identity or the location of the state-funded facility where his body was found. The investigation was closed as it began with no public disclosure, and the report was filed away, one of thousands that portray a hidden world of misery and harm. And again, this is 2016. No one would know that Thomas Powers died at 3300 Essington Road in unincorporated Joliet in a group home managed for adults with developmental and intellectual disabilities, or that his caregivers forced a 50-year-old man with the intellect of a small child to sleep on a soiled mattress on the floor in a room used for storage. Or that the front door bore a building inspection sticker that warned not approved for occupancy, uh, occupancy. Not even Powers' grieving family knew the state had looked into his death and found evidence of neglect. 
as Illinois steers thousands of low-income adults with disabilities into private group homes, a Tribune investigation found Powers was but one of many casualties in a bot strategy to save money and give some of the state's poorest and most vulnerable residents a better life. The first comprehensive accounting of mistreatment inside Illinois, Illinois' uh, taxpayer-funded group homes and their day programs, the Tribune uncovered a system where caregivers often failed to provide basic care while regulators cloaked harm and death with secrecy and silence. The Tribune identified 1,311 cases of documented harm since July 2011, hundreds more cases than publicly reported by the Illinois Department of Human Services. Confronted with those findings, Human Services officials retracted five years of erroneous reports and said the department had launched reforms to ensure accurate reporting. So yeah, that doesn't sound better than Pennhurst at all. Uh, shit's still being kind of hidden. Bad things still happening. Earlier this year, 2018, NPR reported that people with intellectual disabilities are victims of some of the highest rates of sexual assault in the nation. NPR found previously undisclosed government numbers. And again, it's, uh, it's a sad theme here that both these things were you know, undisclosed government numbers showing that uh, people with intellectual disabilities are assaulted at seven times the rate of people without those disabilities. Seven times the rate of assault. Jessica Oppenheim of the Ark of New Jersey, an advocacy group, says people with intellectual disabilities live an isolated life and it makes them more likely to be victimized. Let's face it, she adds, offenders are going to look for an easier target and someone who doesn't feel they have the right to say anything, someone who may not understand what their rights are, someone who's not comfortable or maybe is even afraid to say anything makes for an easier target. So how do we fix things? Well, the American Psychological Association has a lot of thought about this problem or has thought a lot about this problem. It has some insights regarding how to try and fix it. They say uh, the APA has recognized the urgent need for more data. The association makes a number of recommendations, including the creation of a national strategy to collect data, more investment in research, greater development of evidence-based prevention and intervention methods. While more research is sorely needed, psychologists can't ignore the problem until more data rolls in. All mental health professionals should assess for abuse. Uh, people with, you know, intellectual disabilities. Uh, this means, you know, asking clients, patients about types of abuse that aren't always obvious. When people with disabilities are in abusive situations, psychologists have to consider their unique needs as they help them develop safety plans and escape plans. Uh, many domestic domestic violence shelters, for uh, for instance, aren't accessible to someone with a wheelchair. Some with uh, certain medical needs, you know, uh, people in shelters might not know sign language or be able to accommodate a person with visual impairments. These barriers can make it difficult for people with various disabilities to flee an abusive situation. Uh, psychologists can also help by taking a proactive approach to uh, help clients avoid abusive situations. For example, they can uh, help parents of disabled children seek support and learn coping strategies to manage their frustrations so that the child doesn't end up in a potentially dangerous situation. In addition, uh, psychologists can help people with disabilities learn to advocate for themselves and find ways to communicate when something's wrong. Uh, meanwhile, disability advocates say the fields of healthcare, social work, and psychology should do more to teach trainees uh, about disability issues, including intellectual disabilities, raise awareness of the risk of violence towards this population. One place to start is to open the doors to people who walk in those shoes. Psychology needs to become a lot more welcoming uh, of people with disabilities. So, you know, it sounds like uh, what we need to do is uh, not send them away and pretend they don't exist. Uh, they need proper treatment. We need to find out what that treatment is. You know, find out how to take care of them uh, better and better as, as we go forward, you know, who, who, but but then there's this other problem of, of who is going to cover that. You know, I think this problem, I, I again, I, I think of uh, I think of people who like complain about their school system being shitty. 
Uh, but then this is one of probably many examples I could use. But then when a, when a tax levy is, is proposed to increase their taxes to pay for more teachers and better conditions at the school system that they're complaining about, uh, they voted down. You know, which is fucking r- ridiculous. You know, but that kind of stuff happens all the time. But, like, if, we, if we want this issue fixed, you know, we're going to have to throw some money at it. We're going to have to pay for proper care for the less fortunate. You know, unlike when Pennhurst was founded, you know, education exists now for how to care for the intellectually disabled. Now we know how to do it. But that doesn't mean we are doing it, you know, uh, or at least we, we know a lot, you know, how to do it a lot better. We we know how to care for epileptics, the deaf, the blind, the paralyzed, people with all kinds of disabilities who used to be sent to Penhurst or places like Penhurst. I think, uh, you know, uh, for their safety and health and to prevent some additional tragedy, uh, I do think maybe, just maybe, you know, we could talk about maybe some sterilization happening. I know, I know, I know it's not a fucking popular one. You know, I'm not going to get a lot of support on that front. I've had that conversation many times over the course of my adult life, and uh, pretty consistently, my thoughts are met with looks of uh, disgust and horror. It's fine. So what? So what else we can can we do? You know, we can start caring about the intellectually disabled, and we can volunteer our time or money to help those who need a little more help than the rest of us. Um, I looked into some charities, you know, that uh, that help people with intellectual disabilities. The one that seemed the coolest to me that I found uh, doing a little bit of research is called Advancing Opportunities. Advancing Opportunities has a mission to drive independent living for individuals with disabilities. All of their services are person-centered. You know, one especially unique service lends free assistive technology to adults that require some help with tasks like college assignments or recovering from memory loss. Yet another incredible resource for adults with disabilities is their employment program that provides resume building and training on new tasks. Advancing Opportunities strives to be one agency for all disabilities, and they do other things beyond that with people with more severe intellectual disabilities. Uh, link in the episode description if you want to learn more about them or donate. Uh, it's advopps.org. And, and I guess nothing we can do, you know, is uh, is not look down on them, you know. And, and, and in this regard, compared to when I was a kid, things do seem to be changing a lot for the better. Society does seem to be moving in a good direction. And, uh, you know, par- part of <laughs> part of me saying that comes from uh, the research I did for this week's Idiots uh, of the Internet where I, I actually found some inspiration. Let's check it out. ABC has a, a hidden camera show that I, I've never watched, but I've watched a lot of clips of it called What Would You Do? If you haven't seen it, it's uh, uh, they create socially uncomfortable situations out in public to see how strangers will react. You know, they might they might have an actor or actress, you know, say something like overtly racist or threaten domestic violence or, you know, steal something to see if anyone around, you know, notices and, and intervenes. And, uh, and just this past May, they posted a video of a very sweet, very friendly, intellectually disabled man with Down syndrome named Peter. And Peter's trying to order food at a little restaurant uh, when an actor starts harassing him, telling him he's holding everybody up, asking if he can order first before this guy, you know, mocking him, saying he's too slow, you know, to be ordering, saying, he, you know, he can't probably read anyway. Why is he looking at the menu, referring to him loudly, uh, that he is, quote, retarded, that he shouldn't be left out in public alone, et cetera, lots of horrible shit. And time after time in this video, strangers come to Peter's defense. And, and essentially tell this guy to, to get out of the restaurant and go fuck himself. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, but I was afraid still to look in the comments section. I, I expected a troll fest uh, in the comment thread under this video that has almost 5 million views since May 24th. I just think about my own childhood and all the terms that were thrown around and, uh, you know, the horrible things that would be said uh, about people with uh, intellectual disabilities. And I expected those things to pop up in the comment thread, and I was wrong. Uh, Amazing Thomas posts, I don't give a crap that that guy's an actor. I'd shoot, <laughs> I'd shoot him in the side of his head. 
<laughs> Savannah uh, uh, Jalapost, love you guys. And she gets over 700 thumbs up and then tons of love you two replies. John Allen posts, I want that Down syndrome guy as my friend. He is so cute. Chloe Hughes uh, posts, I feel bad for Peter, even if he is an actor, because he must go through that all the time in real life. Frowny face. I had to scroll down through hundreds and hundreds of comments before I I found anything that even hinted slightly negative. I think that's the first time that's ever happened on any of these sucks where I've done that. Uh, Eventually, of course, you know, you get a a video with this many views. You're going to have a couple assholes, but it took me forever to find the first one. And, and And it wasn't as harsh as I expected it to be, honestly. It messed up, but, you know, Roman Reigns 619 posts, Peter has screwed up teeth. That's what he posts. And, and, and I will say that Roman Reigns uh, has a cartoon drawing of some WWE dude as his avatar. So I'm guessing he's about 10 years old. Uh, and immediately the first replies to his, to his post are, screw you. And you're just like the guy who's insulting Peter, screw you. And since they're saying screw instead of fuck, uh, I feel like it's other little kids putting Roman in his place. I like it. Hail Nimrod. And uh, shut the fuck up, Roman Reigns, you shitty little asshole. Tons more nice comments follow. So many more nice comments. Uh, you have to go down like uh, another hundred or so more before you find a user who stole my socks who posts, never understood why people with Down syndrome have the worst haircuts, which, you know, is, is you know, mildly not cool. And then Stephen Jobs, obvious troll replies because they're too stupid to get a good one. And then the other users fucking tear him apart uh, immediately. All replies, but just so angry towards him. None more so than Kanashi Nico who posts... Uh, quote, Stephen Jobs, fuck you, cock dick balls, bitch ass whore, retarded shithead fucking motherfucker, all caps. Okay. Probably should have left out the word retarded in that rant and in all other rants, uh, Kanashi, but I do support your intent. Uh, I do support the rest of the vocab you use wholeheartedly. Then hundreds and hundreds of other super kind comments in a row. Uh, one of my favorites is user Silver Dollar who posts, Peter is not retarded or mentally challenged or any of that. He's a customer at a restaurant trying to enjoy a meal. How beautiful is that if you really think about it? Why do we have to define him by his intellectual ability? Why can't he just be a fucking dude wanting a sandwich? He's just a dude trying to get some taters and some gravy, much like myself. A guy perusing a diner menu, hoping to find uh, that ch- chicken fried steak uh, breakfast is still being served afternoon. Hoping to find that uh, the hot turkey sandwich platter does, in fact, have uh, cranberry sauce. Uh, with it, and that it has real potatoes, not not instant. You know, maybe he's a guy hoping to see a little meatloaf on there, a little meatloaf with some with some green beans, maybe French style. You know, I am uh, very very all too familiar with diner menus, but yeah, exactly. Silver Dollar, he's just another meat sack, just like the rest of us. No one's perfect. And then user Peyton K sums up how I feel about the video in general, just posting, "This makes me feel good." So thank you, uh, internet, for making me feel good and not being full of idiots for once. Well, thank you, Space Edgers, for voting in this topic on the app and the website. I, I would have never picked it. I, I don't think I would have ever heard of it. Now glad I know about Penhurst. And, and I'm glad I know because it's made me reflect a lot on this issue. You know, uh, caring for the intellectually disabled was, is, probably, always will be a very complex issue. So many different situations. You know, there's, there's kids, for example, with, you know, high-functioning autism who are, are much, much, much more self-reliant than, than other kids with extremely low IQs who also need a ton of care. They can be more self-reliant than kids who are quote-unquote normal, you know? Uh, and then there's this, you know, such a wide variety uh, of people with such a wide variety of needs. 
You know, for two years in Spokane back in 2006, 2007, I lived next door to a couple that had three boys. Uh, there was a couple in their, in their 40s, and they had, uh, they had three kids, all, all in their teens, two of the sons, perfectly healthy. Uh, I still see one at shows, stand-up shows in the area from time to time. He's, he's a grown-ass man now. He's, he's not working the drive through with the Spokane Valley Dairy Queen anymore. Uh, but the third son was and is severely disabled, uh, can't speak, can't walk. Uh, severely physically deformed, sits in a specialized motorized wheelchair of sorts, has to have someone else uh, move the, uh, the chair around for him. Uh, not sure how aware he is of his surroundings. He didn't seem when I would be over there to be aware at all. Uh, can't control his bodily functions. Can't really do anything at all for himself. Can't communicate on, on almost any level. His, uh, his mother, this angel of a human being, went back to school, got a nursing degree specific to nursing his type of disability, can't remember the, the the syndrome or whatever condition that you know he had. Uh, I remember it was rare, but uh, but she did that so she could become a full time nurse, and that's what she was now. She didn't she didn't seem to 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 be able to spend much time with her other two kids uh, because her full time seven days a week around the clock job was taking care of the one one child, and that would be her job until either he died or she died. And you could think, well, yeah, yeah, she's his mom. That's what that's what you do. That's what you're supposed to do. But would you do that? Would you throw away any chance at a career? Would you throw away uh, the ability to ever be present for anyone other than this one person in any type of consistent fashion in order to constantly take care of this person uh, for the rest of their life or the rest of yours, uh, some person who may not even be able to cognitively understand that you're their parent? Think about how that would change your life. You know, what if that, what if that became your life until you died of old age? Could you do it? You know, if, if you, if you, you know, if you couldn't, should the state be responsible for taking care of that human being? Uh, if so, are you willing to pay more taxes to have that be an option? Are you willing to advocate that more of your taxes should be allotted for that type of care? So that is an option, you know, uh, and, and if that becomes the case, you know, then, then what gets less funding because that's getting more. It's a fucking tough issue. You know, that's why I, I didn't come, you know, uh, I think to a, a very judgy place against the people at Pennhurst. You know, it's like, what are we supposed to do as a society with with the with the members who can't take care of themselves? Is is this issue solvable? Is it is it unsolvable on some level? You know, what do we do? Uh, we, well, we you know we start with treating the mentally handicapped with uh, and, and people with you know intellectual disabilities with dignity and respect. We don't we don't take advantage of them. We can check on them. We can try to make sure that others aren't taking advantage of them. Uh, and, and I guess we can vote for politicians who we believe are gonna are gonna pass more reforms. And and gonna are gonna a lot more money uh, to their care and just uh, agree that you know we're gonna we're gonna have to pay for it because they can't pay for it themselves. Uh, I don't know. I'm curious what you're gonna write in about this one. I really am. And uh, and that's kind of I'd just be continuing to babble if I go beyond that. So let's get to top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one in 1968, local Philadelphia reporter Bill Baldini did a five-part investigative expose on Penhurst called "Suffer the Little Children." And he lit the fire on a national discussion about how to care for the intellectually disabled that burns to this day. Number two, Penhurst, designed to remove people from society with mental defects as part of America's early 20th century eugenics movement. Yep, America had a eugenics movement. Again, uh, Penhurst's chief physician would quote Henry H. Goddard, that leading eugenicist, saying every feeble-minded person is a potential criminal. That happened. Number three, in 1977, U.S. District Judge Raymond J. Broderick ruled that the conditions at Penhurst State School violated patients' constitutional rights. The lawsuit 
that led to this ruling was filed May 30th, 1974 by Philadelphia attorney David Furliger, representing the patients of the Pennhurst State School. And this lawsuit led to the institution closing its doors for good in 1987. Number four, the intellectually disabled are still suffering. They're assaulted at seven times the national average. Widespread abuse continues at many institutions designed to theoretically house and protect them. What do we do about this? Well, we keep thinking about it. We keep talking about it. We keep spreading the word for others to do the same. Number five, new info. Some of the grounds at Pennhurst now offer uh, paranormal tours. In addition to uh, the, uh, the haunted house thing I said I talked about earlier, the company that operates the haunted house uh, offers a number of other tourist attractions. The about section on their website states, Pennhurst, the legendary haunted hospital complex, has opened its doors after being abandoned for 25 years. Pennhurst Haunted Asylum is Pennsylvania's scariest destination haunted house. The fear is real at Pennhurst. So is this exploiting the intellectually disabled? And uh, is, it, is it really haunted? Uh, I wouldn't want to spend a night there and find out. I feel like, sadly, a lot of very tragic deaths have occurred there. And if a place is going to be haunted, it's probably going to be one of them. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right. Pennhurst has been sucked. A little change of pace. This week's suck. I like it. A lot of food for thought this week. You know, God, what do we do as a society to realistically improve the lives of the intellectually disabled? Uh, big thanks to the Time Suck team, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Dobner, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. Thank you to Alex Dugan, the Bit Elixir uh, team, Danger Brain, Eric Radiker, Queen of the Suck, Lindsey Cummins. Thanks to uh, OG Bangles, uh, Bangles, OG Bojangles, Bojangles, uh, research intern Heather Rylander for again knocking this shit out of the park. And uh, next week, on Monday, we head to the Roman Empire. Specifically, we look at Spartacus. I'm very excited for this one, man. I've always been fascinated with Spartacus. We examine Rome's uh, famous, uh, infamous, I guess, gladiatorial combat. Spartacus was a famous gladiator who led to led a famous uprising against the Roman Republic in the first century BCE. Well, what was life like for Spartacus and other gladiators at that time? Uh, what was life like in Rome? How, how big was the sword? Did he have two swords? Did he have a mace thingy? Did he have a shield? Did he not have a shield? Did he fight with lions? Did Bojangles fight as a gladiator as well? How did those dudes train and win their freedom? Did they body slam people sometimes? Did they fucking fight on boats? I don't know. There's a lot of things I want to find out. I'm really looking forward to getting uh, into all these things, gladiator. Are you not entertained? May have to watch that Russell Crowe movie again. May have to watch some old episodes of that old Star series called Spartacus again. Man, that season one of that show was incredible. Another hidden gem, uh, I think. Spartacus season one, it was on Stars like fucking... Eight years ago or something. Incredible show. And then the poor lead actor died of, uh, I believe it was Hodgkins. Uh, he died of cancer before they could do season two, which was really kind of jarring to me uh, because he was so physically fit. Not that physically fit people can't die, but he was young, ripped, and then just gone. It's fucking crazy. Anyway, right now, uh, let's, get, let's, get out of, let's get out of Spartacus. Uh, let's get to some Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. First up is a Pancho Villa update from Time Sucker, Liz Espino. Uh, I probably fucked up your name now, Liz, even though you're calling me out on a <laughs> Spanish pronunciation uh, thing a little bit. Uh, Espino? Uh, I, I think it's Espino. Liz Espino. Liz sent in an email with the subject. It's Miguel Hidalgo. Hidalgo excuse me, not Manuel. Oh, I must, I, clearly I messed up there. I thought I knew it was Miguel. Okay, anyway. She says, uh, hola, querido, uh, <laughs> maestro. Uh, Mamalone, hello, dear Master Sucker. 
uh, the suckiest of them all. My name is Liz, and while I live in Kansas, my motherland is Mexico. And she says, uh, I was able to find out how much pesos translate uh, to current pesos by 2012 standards at least, and it's equivalent in U.S. dollars, and it's equivalent in U.S. dollars, excuse me. I found 10,000 old pesos equals 396,747. No, 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 wait, 396,747,126 current pesos. Holy shit. Which equals 20 million... $670,128. The site used is uh, bajico.com, quanto.cfm. Site's in Spanish. Keep in mind, I calculated the equivalent of a peso, 1919 to one in 2002. Use the current exchange rate, leaving room for error. Uh, You know, so uh, that's a lot of money, which does prove that Pancho's capture was worth a fuck ton of money, as I said. Well, (laughs) thank you, Liz. I love that update. I love that that's out there. Yeah, no wonder I couldn't find it. I wasn't uh, Googling in Spanish. I appreciate it. Uh, also, these these updates will not reflect uh, Friday's Toy Box Killer episode because I had to record this episode before that episode uh, aired. Uh, another Pancho Villa update, this time from Super Sucker Victor El Camino Sanchez. It says, Master Sucker, I just listened to your Pancho Villa suck, and I want to take the time to say thank you. I am an immigrant from Mexico, and after 26 years, I just became a legal permanent resident of the United States. Ever since I was a small child, I have only ever heard Mexicans described in a negative and dehumanizing way going back to Proposition 187 in California. Google it. Listening to one of my favorite comedians do an in-depth and hilarious breakdown of the life and times of one of Mexico's most legendary and revered figures warms what is left of my cold black heart. I love that addition. I could not stop laughing during the Mexican Pootie and Juju. Thank you for always being thoughtful in your approach, for being curious. Most importantly, thank you for being so goddamn funny. Keep on sucking. Sincerely, Victor El Camino Sanchez. Thank you, Victor. Yes. Paco y Juanita. Muy poco también tiro, puri. Jealous of you having a cool car, by the way, if you do have a Camino. Uh, maybe that is, I guess that could be have nothing to do with cars, you know, that word. But if if you do, I'm jealous. Made me think of a Camino. Made me think of an old uh, Camino. Made me think about how I want to get an old Ford pickup truck. Maybe like a 1960 Ford F100, step side, lots of chrome, cherry that motherfucker out. Oh, anyway, I'm probably sleep deprived right now. Uh, yeah, man, I'm glad you liked the episode. You know, I, I have, uh, honestly, legitimately always had a lot of respect for our Mexican culture, especially living in L.A. for a long time. You know, it is funny to me where, like, as you say, you know, there's, there's, there's these knocks on uh, Mexicans being described in a negative way. You know, one way I heard it as a kid was always uh, lazy, this, 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 uh, you know, that horrible adjective used to describe Mexicans it's like lazy Mexicans. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? D- drive through any agricultural area. Who's out there busting their fucking backs, picking crops, planting seeds? Is, is it a bunch of uh, white dudes? A bunch of white ladies? Fuck no, it's not. Which is one thing that's always got me fired up about immigration. People are like, you're taking our jobs. Okay, but yeah, but some of the jobs, why aren't you fucking doing them? Why aren't you applying? You want to get out there? You want to get out there and bust your ass? Oh, you, oh, you don't. You want to be in Starbucks with air conditioning. Well, I, I get it. But shut the fuck up. Okay, one more poncho update from Time Sucker and military listener Jacob Jones. Jacob, thank you for your service. Jacob writes, Dear Lord Suck Master, the third Esquire. <laughs> First time messenger, long time sucker. I stumbled upon your podcast when driving from Missouri to North Carolina. Got hooked immediately. Anyway, I just listened to the Poncho Via podcast. You did an awesome job getting the info to us in such a funny way, man. I didn't know shit about Poncho except for uh, he pissed off the U.S. at one point. It was hunted down by General John J. Pershing. So I heard you mention his nickname, uh, Blackjack. That took me back to when I was in ROTC at Mizzou, and I would teach a class on General Pershing's life. And he earned his nickname derived from a negative connotation, uh, very negative, uh, given to him by the cadets at West Point, where he was a drill and ceremony instructor. The cadets didn't like him due to his high standards 
And assholes being assholes, the cadets would call him N-Bomb Jack, referencing his time with the 10th Cavalry, uh, an all-black unit. The, the original nickname obviously did not stick for good reason and evolved into Blackjack. Wow, holy shit. I, the, I, until you said this, I thought it had something to do with uh, playing cards, like poker. You know, playing like 21. Uh, I guess not poker, but you know what I mean. Pretty shitty history, but history nonetheless. Hope you found that tidbit of info to be interesting, and thanks for the time suck. I did find it interesting, and you're welcome. Yes, I listen to it on my way to work every morning, and it wakes me the fuck up when I drive to post. Uh, love your stand-up and the podcast. So take it easy, Master Sucker. Respectfully, Jake. Man, well, thank you, Jake. Uh, yeah, man. That, that's a, That was a dark twist I didn't see coming. Uh, that's that's what a, what a different time. They would just openly... Openly call him, you know, N-Bomb Jack, Jesus Christ. Uh, one last one. One last one today from Suckhead and Wonderful Meat Sack, Troy uh, Mangillo. He says, uh, what's the big deal? What's this big deal? Why uh, why you why you stare at me when I suck soft shame cock? I bother no one. It's, uh, it's relaxing toward me. I, I added a little bit there. He says, what's the big deal? Uh, Hail Nimrod for delivering us from the temptations of idiocy. Praise Bojangles in his one-eyed, three-legged gloriousness. Damn Lucifina with her wily charms. Hail Lord of the Suck, a.k.a. Damn Mother Suck and Prophet of the Curious Cubbins, a.k.a. Master of All the Sucks, a.k.a. Insert Funny Caption here, Master Dan Cow. I, lo- I love the fucking preposterous amount of nicknames. I love it when you go through all of your aliases. He says, uh, I write to you because I want to thank you for all the knowledge sucking you have provided. I just recently became a space lizard. It's something I'm very proud of. Cult of the Curious is an amazing community. You're proud to be part of it. I love listening to Suck during my dishwashing job. You sweet, oh, your sweet, sweet voice has been blessed by, <laughs> has been blessed by Nimrod's ball sack. Cracks me up, especially when you slip seamlessly into one of your characters. Uh, thanks, man. I'm trying. I feel like I've been a little light on characters lately. i got to get them back in there a little heavier in the next few episodes. Ever since I moved up to a small town here in New York from the Big Apple, it's... Uh, things have been rough to trying to make ends meet. I'm, I'll spare you the details, but upon discovering your podcast through Pandora, my life has gotten better. Uh, when you pull out the triple M, it, it turns a, a rainy day into sunshine in seconds. Oh, well, I, I did do that today, right? I, I threw in a little. Little, little humming Michael motherfucking McDonald just happened there. He's got, uh, he's got triple M in, in a humming method. Okay, anyway, he says, I made the move to pursue a business venture. I started with my best friend of 27 years. That's awesome. We started a toy company called the Ursonauts. That's cool. We've been trying to get off the ground. We have a social media presence, but, uh, you know, due to life, it's taking a backseat. I, I hear that, man, uh, which we are not proud of. I've been in a downward spiral of depression, constantly feeling like all I ever do is fail, combined with several dating disasters. All I could feel was emptiness. I hated life itself. One day I had Pandora on, heard your advert for Time Suck, listened to the Golden State Killer, and you almost fooled me with your fake story about the West, <laughs> the West End Rapist. I think that's what you called him, and I was hooked. I don't even remember what the hell I called him. I say so much crazy shit on here. I know this is getting a bit long in the tooth, and I apologize for that. But I want to want you to know you become one of my heroes. Never lose your absurd absurdness, nor your curiosity. The best advice I was given was when I was finishing high school, and my bio teacher said to me, "It doesn't matter what you choose to do in life, but be a learned man and read everything. Never let your knowledge stagnate." Oh man, that is so fucking true. I think so, man. Anyway, I love your stand-up, especially the spoons. Yeah, here come the spoons, motherfucker. Uh, thank you for being a curious motherfucker. Keep the suck going. And for the love of Nimrod, can you can you do a gig up here in Hudson Valley? Fan and curious cult member for life, Troy. Oh man, well, I don't know. I don't know if uh hopefully the Hudson Valley works. Hopefully I can do uh gigs where people want me to go, because uh, hopefully the suck keeps spreading and I can, you know, have a big enough audience to do gigs all over the fucking place. And uh Sorry that life uh, has been a little hard, but I like your attitude. I like your outlook. And, man, you know, all you can do, all you can do is just keep pushing, just keep grinding, you know, 
find, you know, follow that passion. Don't give up. You know, if you hit a wall, you know, just stand back, you know, let it, let it go for a day or two. Think about how you can get around it. Think about how you could try to bust through, try something else. And then that's it. And then just never stop. Just never stop doing that. You know, it's, it's no guarantee you're going to succeed, but stopping to do that is a guarantee that you will fail for sure. Uh, love you, buddy. Love all you guys for sending that stuff in. Uh, thank you. Time suckers, I needed that. We all did. That's all for today, time suckers. Have a great week. Take care of each other. Be extra kind to somebody who maybe uh, has a little heavier load than you do to carry through life. You keep on sucking. Your business was humming, but Now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete. And getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 